Welcome to Technovation. I'm Peter High. My guest today is Janet Sherlock. Janet is the Chief Information Officer of Ralph Lauren, a role she's held for nearly four years. She's been a Chief Information Officer multiple times over, most recently prior to her current role at Carter's Oshkosh Bagash. She's on the board of BJ's Restaurants and a past advisory board member of Backcountry.com. She's a past chairman of the National Retail Federation's CIO Council. She's also a doctoral candidate. Uh, we'll talk a bit about uh, all of the above in our interview, but uh, I'm so pleased to have Janet join me today. Welcome, Janet. Hello. Thank you for having me, Peter. No, it's a pleasure. And now for a word from our partner, Tanium, and the company's co-founder and chief executive officer, Orion Hindawi. Orion wanted to take a moment to provide some recommendations for CXOs in charge of technology and digital about how best to manage the cybersecurity landscape. Yeah, so our customers, I think, are realizing there are three things that they really need to be secure. The first is they have way too many products. And as a result of that, they're unable to operate all these products well, and there are holes in their security posture that are created as a result. Many of our customers have 20 or 30 or sometimes 50 different tools. And if they can move to a platform approach, they have a much higher chance of succeeding. The second thing that a lot of our customers are realizing is they need certain visibility on their environment. Every asset where it is, who's using it, what data's on it, what vulnerabilities it has, and to really be able to trust that they have three or four nines confidence in that data set instead of, in some cases, 85 or 90% confidence, which in reality leaves way, way too much of a surface area of vulnerability. And the third one is they need to be able to remediate problems they find instantaneously at scale, globally, even over slow links, even over devices that are not easy to reach. Because without that capability, unfortunately, even if you know that there's a problem, you're still going to get hit by the security event that comes after it because you can't fix it in time. And so between that platform approach, being able to have really, really comprehensive visibility and having really strong control, our customers are seeing a huge upgrade in their capability. And now on to the interview. Well, so as I mentioned, you are the uh, the CIO of Ralph Lauren. You've been in that role for a little less than four years now. Um, talk of uh, Ralph Lauren will certainly be a brand that most people listening to this will know. But in your own words, give a brief overview of the business, if you would. Thank you, Peter. Yes, I believe most people are probably familiar with the Ralph Lauren brand. Uh, but for those who might not be, Ralph Lauren is an international designer, marketer, distributor of timeless lifestyle products, including menswear, women's and children's apparel, accessories and footwear, fragrances and uh, beautiful home products, including furniture, bedding and lighting. And then we also have a hospitality portfolio, including some extremely popular restaurants and cafes that hopefully will be up and running in full force uh, sometime in the near future. The uh, variety and diversity of our businesses and offerings is one of the things that attracted me to Ralph Lauren. And it's what makes the job fun and sometimes challenging for my team and I. Well, let's talk about that job. As CIO, and no two CIO roles are alike. I'm sure that's true even across your CIO roles that you've had. Talk about the current one in your purview, if you would. Sure. Uh, my teams and my portfolio consists of the strategy and overall management of all of the technology at Ralph Lauren, from design conceptualization all the way until the product is uh, distributed to either our wholesale partners our own stores or directly to our end consumers. So in addition to uh, traditional enterprise technology, this also includes our store technology and the full ecosystem of and product management and uh, UX uh, user experience of all of our global digital platforms, 
Uh, we're also responsible for uh, marketing technology, data analytics, and data science. And then, of course, the, uh, the foundation behind all of our technology, which is our global infrastructure, cybersecurity, IT risk, uh, compliance, and privacy. And uh, I should add, Peter, that uh, we are a, a global uh, technology organization, and uh, we strive to build global solutions whenever possible for general consistency and how we interact with the consumer. Of course, accommodating localization wherever and however necessary, but uh, this global strategy uh, supports operational efficiencies for the company and for the organization. You know, examples would be, you know, optimization and visibility to global inventory. And then of course, with a global stance like this, we're able to leverage our technology investments. But I wouldn't define us as a centralized global organization, even though we're based in the US, uh, we have centers of excellence for systems and product management in New York, New Jersey, London, Geneva, Hong Kong, and Bangalore, uh, where our uh, technology associates are all based. Wow, that's a fantastic overview there and certainly speaks to how, how pervasive technology is and how the sun never sets on the IT department within Ralph Lauren. Um, well, you began to allude to the strategy and in, even in your prior uh, response with regard to the nature of the business, you alluded also to some of the changes of the past year and year plus really now uh, since the pandemic began and the quarantine and so on. I know this has been a digital accelerator in a lot of organizations, and I know from our past conversations, that's no different for Ralph Lauren as well. Um, you know, not long ago, it was, it was believed that buying clothing online was, was, wasn't going to be really a, 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 a possibility in many ways, as, as tactile as that experience is and, and, and it was thought to be anyway. Um, and a lot has changed. And I can only imagine a lot has further been accelerated in that model and even the way, ways in which people think about buying, trying on, returning, et cetera, their clothing. Uh, talk a bit about some of the ways uh, in which digital and technology has been used uh, in order to facilitate things during a very trying time for so many. We were in a fortunate position going into the global pandemic from a systems perspective, Peter. First, our company had already deployed a hybrid flexible working arrangement called FlexPlace, and that was pre-COVID. So we were already actively supporting working from home using uh, O365 Teams and Zoom. Uh, and from a digital and retail perspective, again, we were pretty fortunate because we had many of the foundational technologies in place. But we did have to shift left uh, in a few areas more aggressively. Uh, examples would be including capabilities into our appointment booking, uh, creating and supporting virtual appointments, and then adding curbside pickup on top of our in-store pickup, which we were already uh, rolling out. Uh, but I think our biggest uh, shift left efforts was probably in virtual stores. We had been considering our approach to virtual stores before COVID hit. Uh, but that was something that we pulled forward very quickly and, and aggressively. Uh, our stores are such masterpieces and the experience is so unique. We felt it was important to offer the world of Ralph Lauren to our customers, even if they couldn't physically visit our stores. So we rolled out a rich virtual store experience and we quickly integrated it with our e-com platform so that customers could purchase certain products uh, via hotspots uh, directly from their virtual experience. 
And at this point, we now have over, uh, we have seven different virtual store experiences and, and are continuing to build on the capabilities uh, that we have in our virtual store environment. And uh, in addition to uh, the associates in our stores and in our distribution and fulfillment center, whose efforts have been extraordinary during the pandemic as they put themselves out there every day. But I'd say the other teams that were impacted really greatly during COVID were our design and our merchandising teams, Peter. Um, they are used to being together and collaborating on products together with physical samples in front of them. And uh, so what we did uh, to, to support them uh, during the pandemic early on was uh, we set up a design collaboration platform for them to use, and they've adopted it so well. And they were able to really change their way of working. Uh, and there were other processes that were uh, related to that that needed to be modified as well. Like one would be the uh, product approval process that relies upon meetings and milestones uh, for lines and styles and, and fit approvals that are all dependent on the actual physical products uh, being in people's hands. So we were able to leverage our 3D product development for the approval process, which also had the side benefit of streamlining, streamlining the process. Uh, so I think that there are a lot of things that came out of the, uh, the, the crisis that we were in that have had a positive effect on how we work, how we work together and streamlining uh, things like uh, approvals. Uh, you know, in addition to uh, the corporate employees and the, the uh, design and merchandising processes, we also had to address the wholesale buying process, which was largely dependent on visiting regional showrooms to place the upcoming season's orders. So we had to create online experiences to replicate and replace our showroom visits and support different virtual ordering processes for our wholesale partners. Wow, that's a remarkable uh, span of things. And also really remarkable, Janet, the number of things you had in place and not planning for, for uh, an eventuality like a pandemic, but, but uh, the good fortune of having done some very important work to make things a little bit easier in the transition, I'm hearing you say, uh, for, for that hard work, whether it's the virtual work or some of the, some of the plot process uh, changes that were already afoot, uh, perhaps in some cases accelerated, of course, uh, given the acute need to, to do so uh, over the course of the past uh, you know, 14 or 15 months. Um, very interesting. I appreciate that overview. And I, I wonder, so out of necessity, uh, some of the some some ways of working have changed. And I wonder, as you look beyond the pandemic into some of the areas you've just described, uh, you know, are, are some of those examples uh, things that you uh, only put in place because of the pandemic, but have shown to have such value that they will have a, a life beyond it? Uh, you mentioned several new ways of working. Um, I can only imagine that some of them have proven to be advantageous to the point where they, they will change the way you think about doing things, even when there's the flexibility of going back to the old way of doing things. T talk a bit about that, if you would. That is a great point, Peter. Uh, and our, our listeners can't see me right now, but in my hand, I have my iPhone and I have it open to an app that displays our selling dashboard. And there are 16 new different permeations of new ways of shopping that we expressly created during the pandemic. And we've been tracking ever since. These new ways of shopping won't change. They're going to continue to proliferate. So you know, this proliferation of tech-driven capabilities 
is really exciting. It allows the consumer to shop wherever and however they want to. Uh, but it also drives great complexity and workload for the tech team. We certainly didn't add on 16 times the resources to support this activity. So now, Peter, ingenuity, innovation, architecture, and agility are so key to our success. Uh, we do have to support more environments. It won't just be in-person environments. It won't just be offline environments. It will be hybrid and everything in between. So I think our jobs actually have gotten uh, harder and yet more significant as a result of uh, as a result of the efforts this past year. That's fantastic. Uh, talk a bit about as you look to the year ahead, some of the other areas of focus, uh, some other aspects of your strategic plan uh, that you haven't already mentioned. Where else is the team focused at the present? Yes, thanks, Peter. We have just uh, kicked off our new fiscal year, and there is so much going on. Uh, we've taken our portfolio of initiatives and roadmaps, and of course, they align to our company and our business imperatives. But if I were to summarize our focus from our technology group's perspective, I think I would categorize them into three themes, and those would be experiences, data, and automation. And of course, all this is on the basis of uh, agility. Now, you might refer to it as nimbleness, Peter, but uh, <laughs> I'm using the term agility. I, I spoke before about some of the experiences we've been building um, online and in our stores, and we're going to continue to build new experiences, and we're going to continue to support additional customer journeys. And I can tell you that right now we're working on some very cool uh, store of the future concepts that are that are in our lab right now, and they're using the foundation of uh, of the architecture that we built for uh, the experiences that we have that have our connected retail in mind. Um, everything is in our in interoperable between our online, our martech, our in store capabilities um, are blended together so that we can create seamless uh, experiences, and we have some really cool ones planned for the future. So the, the next area that I, I, I was talking about that we're focused on is, is data. And I know that a lot of my colleagues are talking about this. And uh, you know, beyond or, or before we actually talk about uh, data analytics, uh, it's really about uh, our data strategy. Um, and we're being very deliberate about the overall data strategy for the core uh, elements of data, things like our product data, our digital assets, our customer data, thinking really strategically about where they're stored, how they're accessed and leveraged, how they're maintained, uh, not just for the use of data and analytics, but for being able to serve up in a real-time basis for things like personalization, uh, real-time um, uh, real actions, real-time decision-making. Uh, so the data strategy is, is, is critical and important. And then of course it leads to uh, your capabilities in uh, advanced analytics and, and data science which for us, that is a major uh, area of emphasis and focus. Uh, but if I could break that down into uh, three areas of, of, of approach for us, which is uh, the data itself, the architecture uh, that supports uh, analytics, and then uh, the process behind it. So, you know, you heard me before talk about uh, our data strategy and, and where data is stored. But I think like many of my colleagues, and I have to say, I'm, I feel very fortunate that we're in a different place today than I was four years ago at Ralph Lauren. Uh, 
and I love how you, in your book, I believe you, you talk about silos. And I do believe that the, uh, the IT group can really act like uh, connective tissue to the, to the organization. But I think it's so important um, in today's day and age that uh, we as technology leaders really become uh, the driver for helping the organization become data-driven. Uh, there are so many places where data is also in silos. Uh, and I think we all know where a lot of those are. Those are sometimes in marketing teams or in supply chain teams or finance teams. Uh, and I think it's so important to have access to that data and to democratize that data. And that, those, those would include things like data that's in digital agencies, NPS scores, you know, data that's in your freight forwarders. If you think about it, if you don't have that data, using the freight forwarder example, you don't have visibility to end-to-end -end supply chain without having that data. So it's really important that we, we break down those silos and democratize the data. And then next, uh, going to, to architecture, uh, my team's done a fabulous job of building a, a, a data fabric strategy that connects the our, our own clouds as well as the clouds of third-party providers so we get better efficiency and, of course, while managing it very securely. But that uh, data fabric strategy has really helped us be able to work with our partners more efficiently and, uh, and leverage data more efficiently. And then last but not least, uh, having our team and our processes structured for agility in, in the area of analytics is so important. Uh, so we're structured, uh, Peter, in a lab and a factory uh, format. So the lab efforts are for quick insights or testing hypotheses or for quick uh, proofs of concept with data. And then if that effort needs to be standardized or galvanized or made repeatable, whether that be through an operational algorithm or some type of regular reporting or, foreca or operational forecasts, that effort is then productionized uh, by the factory. Of course, all this is to support uh, that agility that I spoke of uh, earlier. Again, a great overview. I really appreciate that. Can you, I want to actually just return to that lab and factory point. I think it's such an interesting one and a nuanced one, uh, Janet. Uh, can you talk a bit about the way in which you think about um, how the teams work in each of those settings? Um, do you have in, in the, the lab, uh, the so-called lab setting, for instance, is it a different kind of makeup of people that you've brought into that setting? Are there different kinds of skills that you that you brought to bear? It, it, does it bring, bring in people from different parts of the organization? Can you talk a little bit about that, please? That is a great question, Peter. And yes, it, it does involve uh, a new set of skills. That is where our um, machine learning data scientist uh, group sits. But I love the fact that you asked the question about the rest of the organization. Uh, we do definitely want to make it so that not only are, is the data democratized, but as well as the capability to be very self uh, sufficient uh, with the use of, of, of our data and, and, and analytics. Uh, so we do, uh, we provide training and assistance for any data citizens uh, because we want to build the capabilities and not keep them into, once again, we don't want to build our own silo. Uh, so we do support um, the rest of the organization to, to, to be data citizens, uh, but we definitely maintain uh, in the lab our own uh, set of uh, machine learning experts. In the factory is where we productionalize things, uh, the data streams, the data sets, 
Um, and and, uh, and and we work with our, our business analysts to support the factory to productionize uh, things for you know reporting or whether we need to input import things into uh, other operational systems. So yes, uh, there's definitely a distinct um, uh, variation and uh, skill sets uh, in both the lab and in the factory. I mentioned in the introduction that uh, you are on the board of BJ's Restaurants, a uh, very large organization. Uh, it's a public board. This is something, as you must know, is an aspiration of a lot of your peers. And thankfully, there's a growing cadre of, of uh, CIOs who've been asked to join boards for a whole range of reasons, not the least of which uh, the, the rising importance of, of knowledge about technology and digital and its impact on customers and the operation, among a whole range of reasons why one might do so. Um, as this is a great aspiration for many who've not yet achieved it, I wonder if you can reflect on your journey towards board membership with many lessons you might provide for others who would wish to, to do the same. Sure, Peter. Yes, I, uh, I've been on a public board now for a couple of years. And uh, in full disclosure, I had been uh, up for several uh, public board seats prior, uh, but until you get your first public board seat, it's often difficult to to get uh, a place in your on your first uh, public board seat. I had had experience with uh, industry boards, as you had mentioned in, in the introduction, and I also was on the board of a, a government related board, which uh, had a lot of the same uh, types of of requirements and. Uh, and functions as a public board, which I think helped me uh, during the interview process. But uh, it, it is a, it's a great privilege. And I also have to say, I, there are a lot of people that I think uh, look at it as, a, as this uh, opportunity that is, uh, you know, it, it, you meet four times a year and there might not be that much work to it. There's a lot more work to it than, than one might imagine. And I have to say this past year, uh, with the the pandemic, you started to really realize uh, the gravity of the seat that you hold. Uh, you know, there's a, a you know, financial responsibility and and how your uh, organization's managing its capital and the compensation that's associated with it and the changes as a result of something like the pandemic. Uh, so I do think that people need to to think long and hard about uh, about uh, the the seat that they're about to take. But it is such a wonderful learning opportunity, and it is such a great way. Uh, to take the experience that you have and offer it into a different organization and take what you hear from that organization and bring it into your own organization. So I do think it's important uh, to, 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 to think about it and be prepared for it, uh, but it is a wonderful opportunity for those who are at that point in their career uh, where uh, service on a board makes sense. That's fantastic. Thank you for those insights. I also mentioned a, a remarkable thing, as though you're not busy enough being a, a senior executive at a major corporation on the board of other organizations. You're also pursuing a PhD. I, I, I find that un unbelievable that you were able to find the time to do so. Uh, talk about the, first of all, why you chose to do so at this, this sta stage of your career and talk a bit about what it is that you're studying, please. Sure. Uh... Last year, I opted to make my life as a wife and mother, corporate executive, board member, and mentor a little complicated <laughs> by adding, adding a doctoral candidate to that list. And I can tell you that the only way I am able to make this work is the support that I have for my family and for my organization. 
Uh, Peter, we can have a whole other podcast discussing uh, career, uh, strategic career planning and mapping. I actually have a lot of passion for that topic and a lot of advice on that front. Uh, but today I'll, I will just offer these two pieces of advice in, in relation to that, which is first, always surround yourself with people who are going to be completely supportive of your life choices. And then second, you know, there's never a right time for things. Uh, people can question uh, my choice of timing for, for, for starting to pursue my doctorate. Beginning a, a doctorate during the middle of a pandemic might seem illogical, but you know, there never is a right time for things. So you really just need to follow your, your, your personal North Star. And uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm thrilled that I'm in this process right now. Uh, the doctoral work itself, um, I'm actually pursuing a doctorate in organizational change and leadership. And uh, I'm focused on the future of uh, the CIO role. And I have been astounded at just how much academic, empirical, and scholarly research has been done on the CIO role. Uh, interestingly, most of the works seem to focus on the same thing, which is ambiguity, uh, ambiguity around the CIO role. So my goal is to address this ambiguity uh, with the right archetype, background, rules, and responsibility for this uh, role and for the technology function. I'd like to provide boards and CEOs a framework for how to consider structuring technology for the future of their organizations. Incredible. It's a great, great aspiration. Or I, I realize it's still early days. Um, well, Janet, I, thank you for that overview and best of luck with that. I, I'm again, I'm a, I admire you for for the various things you're able to juggle and juggle so well. It's it's really remarkable. Um, I wanted to ask you also, as you look to the future, we've talked about a number of sort of trends that you are uh, investing in and areas of interest, strategic priorities and so on. But I wondered if uh, here at the conclusion of our conversation, if there are any others that you wish to highlight that you think are particularly weighty or of, of interest as you look to the future? You know, Peter, I think we're really in an interesting time where some technological advancements are actually outpacing general societal acceptance. Uh, you know, cryptocurrency is becoming mainstream in so many capacities. I'm, I'm hoping that you uh, have invested in Bitcoin yourself, Peter. Uh, but, you know, we, it's not largely accepted as a method of payment in the retail industry. Uh, of course, we're watching it very closely. And uh, we've built the agility to be able to support uh, accepting pretty much any method of payment. So I, I'm, I'm certain that we'll be able to accept it when the, the time is right. But it's exciting to think about, uh, if you think about the retail industry is an over $5 trillion a year industry and is over 20% of the US GDP. So accepting uh, uh, Bitcoin or, or any other of the cryptos, that would not be a major tipping point. It would really be a flipping point. Uh, and, you know, and, and the same with drones. Uh, you know, Assuming that the parcel carriers are going to also be using drones as part of their fleet, uh, let's assume we had a, a, another alternative uh, drone provider. I believe that we could, you know, onboard one with quick and agile ease. Um, we were, we're building, as I mentioned before, technology that has a lot of flexibility in it. Um, so, you know, again, you know, drones are 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 out there. It's uh, it's it would be revolutionizing for our industry. So, Peter, we are ready, willing, and able for some of this tech, um, and um, very excited for it to come along. And, 
you know, I'm enthused by uh, all of the, the the technology that's out there, especially the ones that uh, that are in my mind and my team's uh, purview and focus. Uh, you know, AR, VR, uh, blockchain, beyond uh, the the Bitcoin and crypto that I already spoke about, and of course, you, I think you heard about my my passion on the uh, AI and ML space, and of course, quantum, which will uh, completely uh, be a game changer as far as our ability for uh, for AI and ML. Um, you know, and anything that we can put into our lab and test and learn, of course we will. But I'm also really excited about supporting uh, technological changes that are broader within Ralph Lauren. So things like our expanding use of uh, plant-based leather and uh, or changing our garment uh, coloring process. Um, our color on demand efforts are exciting, not only because they're a material change from a sustainability standpoint, it's actually a zero uh, wastewater dyeing system, but it also has the ability to uh, impact the overall supply chain and consumer experience for cotton products uh, for, for us down the road. Very exciting. Well, thank you for sharing those perspectives. And Janet Sherlock, thank you more generally speaking for a really terrific conversation covering so many different aspects of all that you do, you and your team do uh, to to foster resilience in your organization uh, and to to ride a variety of trends uh, to the advantage of Ralph Lauren. It's It's been a, a wonderful conversation and great speaking with you today. Thank you, Peter. Again, thank you so much for having me.